When I was younger, I used to spend time working at my father's auto parts store. He ran Gilbert Auto Supply for many years, and he would often have news talk radio on in the background, in the office, and so I could listen in. And there was one program that often caught my attention more than others. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's called The Rest of the Story by Paul Harvey. Uh, Paul Harvey was a brilliant storyteller. Each episode was only about three and a half minutes long, and it was amazing how much he was able to condense into these brief little stories. He'd start with an engaging intro, and they're usually biographies about someone's story, and then he would add more elements to the narrative, giving details and context, including tension, and then he would bring it to a, a nice, satisfying conclusion But the episodes would always have a little surprise twist at the end. He would give you a little bit extra detail, a little punchline. He would reveal a little bit extra after the story. And that that punchline, that little detail, would cause you to go back and think through that whole story once again in your mind, to think through it in a fresh way, in light of that new fact that he's revealed at the end of the story. And then he would say his iconic phrase, and now you know the rest of the story. I heard a couple people getting it saying it along with me. So if you don't know, here's just one quick example. Uh, I'm taking a bit of a risk in sort of giving his illustration. This is actually a condensed version, but I want you to understand what we're talking about here. One example. M.R. is a 21-year-old inmate in San Quentin. He had committed crimes, petty theft, attempted robbery, and after some months of being behind bars, he yearned for freedom, and so he was brewing an escape plan. Inside the prison furniture factory, the inmates were crafting this massive desk for a judge in San Francisco. The desk was huge, 1,500 pounds, so big, in fact, that two grown men could fit inside of this desk. So M.R. and an older inmate friend of his that, that went by Rabbit hatched a plan to escape from San Quentin. But at the last moment, M.R. backed out. Rabbit did escape successfully through that desk as it was taken out for delivery, but subsequently he was uh, apprehended and in the altercation shot someone and killed them. And so when he was brought back to prison, he was actually put into the gas chamber and sentenced to death. So had M.R. escaped prison with Rabbit, he likely would have been an accessory to that crime. But instead, when Rabbit ran... M.R. stayed and served his time in prison. He took parole, and two years later, he was released from prison. He straightened out his life, and it would have been so easy for him to have snuck out in that desk. But when M.R. came to the crossroads of his life, he chose the right road. He lived to build a career which has thrilled country music lovers ever since, For more than 40 years, you have been humming the tunes of M.R., Merle Ronald Haggard. That's right, Merle Haggard. And now you know the rest of the story. Now, if you don't know who Merle Haggard is, we can start a music appreciation class here. (laughs) If we need to. We'll make time in the schedule. On one level, that story, as you're listening to it, is an interesting story about two characters who are making life choices that have drastic implications for where their lives will be headed in trajectories. But on another level, there is the bigger implications of these small life choices. That small choice not to escape prison 
for Merle Haggard had a wider significance than he would have ever anticipated. He impacted countless lives in ways that he never would have guessed through his own brand of uh, outlaw country about the working class. Well, the book of Ruth ends with a similar kind of surprise twist at the end of it. On one level, the, the book of Ruth is a heartwarming story about faithful love of this woman Ruth and the faithful, steadfast, covenantal loyalty of Boaz and the reversal of Naomi's fortunes where she's going from emptiness to fullness. But on another level, it's a story that looks forward in time to consider the wider significance of their lives and ways that they would have never known. I realize that it's likely that you already know the surprise ending of Ruth, especially in light of the fact that Stefan just read it for us. But I, I, I'm just going to ask you to su suspend that knowledge for the next 30 minutes or so. Just pretend like you don't know that, and we're just going to enter into this narrative in real time and allow it to play out for us. And as we wrap up this last act of Ruth, let's allow ourselves to be surprised in a fresh way at the inscrutable providence and steadfast, loyal love and unfailing goodness of God. Let's pray as we start. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning to turn to your word with expectation. We know that this narrative is so fam familiar for many of us uh, that the impact of it might be lost. And so we ask that you would help us this morning by your spirit to engage in, on an emotional level with this narrative so that we can truly understand the significance of what's going on here, not just for Naomi and Ruth and Boaz not even just for the nation of Israel, but for your church and for the souls that are sitting in these pews. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. First, we're just going to read through the final scene uh, in this narrative. Really, it's verses 1 through 12. The final scene where we see that Boaz steps up and Mr. So-and-so backs out. Let me read verses 1 through 2 for us. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate, and he sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So last week, we read about that encounter between Ruth and Boaz that happened on the threshing room uh, floor where he was asleep there. Ruth had been able to provide for herself and for her mother-in-law in the short term by gleaning wheat and barley out of Boaz's field. Well, now the harvest had ended, and so she was seeking a longer-term sort of way to provide for herself and for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so Naomi comes up with this plan. Naomi has a plan to try to get a longer-term solution for their needs. And we learned that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. There's this provision and ordinance within Israel's law to help those within the community of Israel who were facing a crisis, a crisis of any kind, really. In a particular sense, Naomi's husband Elimelech had died. We're thinking narrowly about this example. Elimelech has died, as has Elimelech's two sons. So the family property 
in Bethlehem that belonged to that family would be left to Naomi. But she had no way of farming that land, for caring for it, for tilling it, for causing it to be fruitful for her. So it was an asset that was of no use to her. There was a very strong tie between people, families, clans, and their land in ancient Israel. The promised land, as they understood it, ultimately didn't belong to them, it belonged to God. Uh, But when those 12 tribes came into Israel, the land was allotted to those 12 tribes, and it was meant to stay that way. They were meant to steward the land that God had given to them, to guard it and to keep it. But when Israel received the land, they split it up, and that's the way that was supposed to be. So even, even if someone had sold their land to someone else, maybe to pay off a debt, it was supposed to return to the original owner, the original family, during the year of Jubilee, when everything sort of gets reset. Like, this is the way that things are meant to be and stay. The family, tribal, uh, clan continuity of ownership in the land is a very big deal. So, when the continuity of the family name and land is being lost, it's a, it's a, it's a huge concern. So, Elimelech's family now is facing two problems. First, they have no sons to inherit the land and to continue the family name, which is tied to that land. And second, there's no one to work that family farm to cause it to be fruitful, to continue to provide for his uh, daughter-in-law and his wife, Naomi and Ruth. So just really want to iterate this point. The continuity between the family and the land was really tight, so tight, in fact, that When a man died without having an heir who would be able to take over that land on behalf of the family, that man's next of kin was supposed to marry that widow to help continue the family line so that the name would continue in ownership over that land. The firstborn son of that union then would be an heir to that deceased man's land. That would be his inheritance. This is called the leveret marriage. This is described in Deuteronomy chapter 25, if you want to read more about that there. What happens is the next of kin would take on the responsibilities and the debts of the family. He would pay the cost to redeem the helpless and powerless out of the troubles that they were in. That person who would be doing that is called the kinsman redeemer. All right, well, now Boaz is related to Elimelech somehow. And so Naomi was thinking, well, maybe he can be that for us. We're in a similar situation. We have no males. We have this land. Maybe he can come and do that for us. So Ruth likes the idea. She goes and asks. Boaz says, yes, I will redeem you. But there is a hitch. There was someone who was nearer to Elimelech than Boaz was. And so Boaz says, I need to go check with him first. He's actually a nearer kinsman redeemer than I. And that guy would have the the opportunity, the right, the option to step in and redeem that family of Elimelech first. But no matter what, we remember at the end of chapter three, no matter what, Boaz says, you will be redeemed. Whether it's through this guy or whether it's through me, it is as good as done. He gives an oath, promises, leaves her with some grain, which brings us then to the start of act four, which is where our text is beginning. He had left the night before even, or the early in the morning, before the sun had even come up. He was anxious to get about this work, and he arrives at the town gates. Now, the town gates were the main thoroughfare for the city. That's where people would come in and out. 
And so a lot of the business for the town would be done there at the town gates. We don't really have anything like that around here. We can sort of think of it as like a, a town square and a courthouse all in one. A lot of the legal stuff would sort of just get worked out in front of the crowds. There's a lot of witnesses here at the town gates. So Boaz goes into the city of Bethlehem, trying to find this other closer relative to see if he would be willing to step up and redeem this family that was in need, that was related to them. And lo and behold, who happens to show up but that guy. We don't actually know what his name is. Uh, He's just called a, a nearer redeemer. We have it translated in our ESV as friend, but what is actually given there is just a generic name. It's not a name at all. It doesn't actually say friend. It's a, it's a rhyming phrase that refers to an anonymous person. We have this in English, like Joe Schmo. So anyhow, Joe Schmo walks up and has a seat. We could also translate it as Mr. So-and-so. We don't really know who he is. His name's unimportant. It really doesn't matter. That's how he's introduced. So Boaz sees Mr. So-and-so, it's the nearer redeemer, And he asks him to sit down in the town square, and then he gets 10 elders along together to sit there in the the town gates to watch and witness whatever's going to be happening now between Boaz and Mr. So-and-so. And then Boaz lays out the situation, verses 3 and 4. And then he said to this redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, And in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So we might might summarize Boaz's description of the situation here like this. Our relative Naomi has a field but she needs to sell it in order to make money to live on. It's useless to her. And since you and I are both related to Elimelech, it's actually our responsibility to buy that field in order to keep it in the family. Whoever then steps up to act as that kinsman redeemer would essentially be adding that property to his own family. That would be part of his inheritance now, assuming that there's no other children involved who would inherit it for them. You're the closest relatives, you're like the closest, you're the first in line. I just wanted to let you know about this opportunity so that you could take the responsibility or turn it down. Because if you turn it down, it would be coming to me. But it's really down to me and you, so it needs to be one of us. That's essentially the situation as Boaz is laying it out there. And then we get the shocking response. I mean, if you're following along, this is disturbing to some degree. The anonymous relative says that he's going to step up and act as the kinsman redeemer. Of course, we, as the readers of this narrative, are like, no, nope, it's not supposed to be you. Didn't you read the other chapters? It's supposed to be Boaz, not this, this Mr. No-Name. We're on Team Boaz. We're not on Team Mr. So-and-so. It's like if Pam ended up with Ryan instead of Jim in the office. Or if Princess Buttercup ends up with Prince Humperdinck instead of Wesley. This is just not right. Well, really, this whole scene actually might be a little bit surprising because up to this point, Naomi's parcel of land has not been mentioned at all. This has really just been about the relationship between Ruth and Boaz. We didn't necessarily know that there was land involved in this act of redemption. 
We didn't know what had happened to that land. You know, Elimelech and his family had left now. They had been living in Moab for 10 years. Who knows what had happened to this land? We're not actually explicitly told. Perhaps it had gone unkempt, covered in weeds. No one's been paying attention to it. But it still belongs to them. And so far as Mr. So-and-so knows, it's almost like he had heard like a rich uncle has passed away and has now been able to give you this large property. He would be responsible, of course, to make sure Elimelech's aged widow, Naomi, had everything that she needed, but he would actually get a plot of land for himself. It would belong to him. He would have to restore it. There's cost involved, but he would also be able to farm on it or at least take over the responsibility of the field and then share those proceeds of the fruit of the field with Naomi. So he was happy to take it. This is where we're at. But then Boaz adds an extra little detail. Notice in verses 5 through 6. Then Boaz said, The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself. I can't redeem it. So remember, Naomi is past her childbearing years. So when Mr. So-and-so first hears this opportunity, he doesn't think there's going to be any heirs who would have the opportunity or the option to take over this land in the future. It was just going to belong to him and to his family. But now, Boaz adds that Naomi's not actually alone. Ruth, the Moabite, also belongs to the family. So that means there would be a responsibility for this kinsman redeemer to try and continue the family line of Elimelech with Ruth, which would mean that there would be a possibility of a new heir born from that marriage who would be able then to take back that land in the future, an heir for that land. And of course, if that happened, the property wouldn't actually belong to Mr. So-and-so at all anymore. So once he hears that Ruth is involved, he backs out. Maybe this isn't a good opportunity. Maybe this isn't all I thought it was going to be. He says he can't redeem it for himself because he might impair his own inheritance. This helps us understand there's a serious cost involved in the act of redemption. This nearer kinsman was not willing to bear that cost. If he was able to take over the land, it might be worth the risk, but if there's an heir to take back the land in the future, then it wouldn't prove to be a very smart long-term investment. And taking on that risk, according to his own words, might destroy his own inheritance. So he tells Boaz to take the right of redemption for himself here in the midst of the town square at the city gates in front of all these witnesses. And so they make it official, verses 7 through 8. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. So even when the book of Ruth was written, it was far enough removed from when this actually happened in history that the narrator had to explain this unusual custom. Even the first readers of Ruth wouldn't have fully understood what's happening here with the shoe. Boaz and Mr. So-and-so have confirmed the transaction now. Mr. So-and-so says, I don't want to do this. It's not worth the risk to me. I might ruin my inheritance. Boaz says, okay, cool. Just hand that over, that responsibility over to me. And so the way that it's done 
is the one who is giving up the right of redemption would take off his sandal and then give it to the one who is bearing that new responsibility. Just to be clear, the nearest kinsman wasn't actually legally obligated to marry and redeem. That's clear here from this passage. He is free to turn it down, but it was shameful to do so. And for this nearest kinsman, he just decided that the cost was just too much for him. So you can actually see in verse 6 the way that he talks about it, that Mr. So-and-so is much more concerned for himself than he is for others. Look at the language in verse 6. He refers to himself a whole lot. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I just want you to notice the strong contrast in the way that Boaz is perceiving the situation. Notice how he publicly pledges to redeem the family in verses 9 through 10. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Your witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon, also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his brothers and from the gate of his native place, your witnesses this day. So Boaz steps up publicly and bears the responsibility, recognizing that it comes with its own costs, it's going to come with its own responsibilities, obligations. But notice why he's doing it in verse 10. It says, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead might not be cut off. Do you see that Boaz isn't primarily doing this for himself? He's really not concerned about protecting his own inheritance. He recognizes his social obligation to others, and he willingly enters into it at great cost, a great risk to himself. Remember that nearer kinsman turned this whole thing down because he thought it was going to potentially destroy his own inheritance. But here's Boaz willingly stepping up to the plate and absorbing the cost for the good of these others. For Naomi, for Ruth, but also for Elimelech and his two sons, whom Boaz names by name, Kilian and Malon. This seems to be an important part of the Lord's Hesed, his loving kindness that comes up over and over again, that Hebrew word Hesed that both Boaz and Ruth have shown earlier in this narrative. It includes, that loving kindness includes a respect for those who have passed away. Notice how Naomi describes the kindness of Ruth in chapter 1, verse 8. Speaking to Ruth and Orpah at the moment, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. That word kindly there, again, his hesed, steadfast, loyal love. And then again, notice how Naomi describes the kindness of Boaz when he lets Ruth glean in his field. Chapter 2, verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Do you notice, do you see the connection here between the kindness and not being forsaken, the living and the dead not being forsaken? The kind of covenantal 
steadfast, loving kindness that the Lord defines and shows himself involves honoring the name and the memory of those who have passed away. There is some level of concern, I believe, that we all have that when we pass away, we'll be forgotten to history. That our own name will be forgotten, will sort of be erased from existence. But God in his faithful kindness does not forget those who have gone to sleep in the Lord. Our memories, our lives, of course, do have their own limitations. But God does not forget the dead who have clung to his promises for eternal life. Their names might not make the history books, but they're in the Lamb's book of life. And that is definitional of God's loyal love, that he remembers those who have gone to sleep in his loving kindness. It's definitional to God's love, and we're actually seeing it play out through the lives in real time in narrative format through Boaz and through Ruth both. They're both stepping up into situations that they could have just as easily walked away from. They very well could have turned down these opportunities in order to make life easier for themselves. But they're not backing out, not like Mr. So-and-so. They're stepping up for the sake of others, even for those who have already passed away. Do you see the selflessness in Boaz's act of redemption. He's not doing this for himself. He's stepping in on the behalf of others. For Naomi and for Ruth, yes. Those who are helpless to provide for themselves, but also for his own distant relatives who've already passed away, Elimelech and his sons, Kilian and Malon. So it might be that Boaz ends up losing money in the end. Maybe this is a risk. Maybe it's some risk to his own inheritance. He's got to cover the cost for this other man's family, not for his own name, but for the benefit of others. And of course, here is the great paradox. Boaz's act of selflessness is what has etched his name into redemptive history for us. We remember Boaz, we recall his name this morning, not because he was trying to make a name for himself, but because he was trying to be faithful and to serve others and honor the Lord Of course, we don't know the name of that fellow who didn't end up stepping up, the one who backed out. We're not given his name on purpose. His name is erased in that sense. But the man Boaz, who was willing to step into the obligation for the good of others, now is remembered for all time. We don't know all the reasons that Mr. So-and-so backed out of the obligation. It's not ultimately clear to us whether he just didn't have the resources to actually cover the risk. It's a possibility. Maybe he was just too selfish to absorb the cost on behalf of someone else. Orpah, turning back to Moab, serves as a great contrast for us when we see Ruth doing the opposite. In a similar way, Mr. So-and-so serves us as a great contrast when he acts selfishly and we see Boaz acting selflessly. Joe Schmo turned down the right to redeem which shows the costly, steadfast love of Boaz all the stronger. This really is a lesson for men and women alike, but since we're speaking about men in particular, men. What capacities, uh, abilities, opportunities to serve others have you been given by the Lord? 
Are you stepping up to the plate and embracing the cost? Or are you backing out into obscurity? Boaz probably could have been justified in backing out. He could have said he needed to protect his own inheritance. He could have said he just needed more time for himself. Maybe he was just too busy. Maybe he was too busy leveling up in Call of Duty. But he stepped up to the actual Call of Duty and he shouldered the cost for the good of others. We mentioned last week about how Boaz and Ruth are sort of presented in this narrative as a new Adam and Eve. And what were Adam and Eve meant to do when they were created? But to guard and keep the garden. They were meant to bring order out of chaos. It isn't that what we see Boaz and Ruth doing. They see the chaos that Naomi was in. Boaz sees the chaos that they're both in and they enter into it in order to bring order to that situation. This is what we were created to do. To embrace the call to work by bringing order into chaos. See the need and you meet the need. It's costly. It is difficult, but it's the way that we were created to live. Meaning and purpose in our lives often arises from shouldering responsibility to help other people, not to serve ourselves. After all, isn't Christ the perfect embodiment of this principle? The man who laid aside his own glory to pursue the good of his people at great cost to himself. Who came to serve and not to be served. Friends, our culture is so pervasively addicted to safety and comfort that we are at very great risk of squeezing all of the meaning out of our lives. Do you know what I mean by this? A fear of difficulty drives us to distraction, <laughs> which ultimately leads to despondency. A fear of difficulty drives us to distraction, which leads to despair. There's a sense of emptiness and unfulfillment in a life that is afraid to do hard things. Have you observed in your own life, the life of loved ones perhaps? There's a reason why this proverb is not found in the Bible, but is true to life history. The idle hands of the devil's workshop. Let's continue to be the kind of people who pour out into others, those under our care for their good, even when, perhaps especially when, it comes actually at cost to us. The crowd has gathered to the town gate. They're acting as witnesses to this interaction between Boaz and Mr. So-and-so, and they're actually celebrating the fact that Boaz steps up to accept the responsibility, verses 11 and 12. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephaphra and renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give to you by this young woman. They pronounce a blessing on Boaz and on Ruth that the Lord might use them as a pillar in the family history of Israel going forward. May Ruth be like Rachel and Leah. Those were the, the matriarchs of Israel, like the mothers of, of Israel as they knew it. And then Perez is mentioned, who is the son of Tamar and Judah, one of Boaz's own ancestors who had a lot of kids. 
So maybe you have many children. Essentially, the sound says that the town, these people are gathering there, those witnesses are saying, may you be blessed, may you have many children, and may your family continue to act worthily. To act worthily. It's an important word. It was described of Boaz. It was described of Ruth. They're both worthy men and women. May your family continue that mighty, worthy character. That celebration then at the town gates, after the celebration is done, they've observed what Boaz is agreeing to do. That ends this part of the narrative. There really isn't a very real sense of the end of the story. What we get next is like an epilogue that explains what happens in the months and years to come. The epilogue, verses 13 through 17. Satisfaction, fullness, and redemption accomplished. Verses 13 through 17. I'll read those back into our hearing. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So sometimes movies end, but then they'll tag on a little two-minute recap summarizing what happens in the lives of people and the characters of the movie. I think the Sandlot does this at the end. That's kind of what this is like. It's giving you a little recap of what happens in the not-so-distant future. The narrative's not playing out in real time anymore. I picture it sort of like a montage of video clips from the years to come with a little bit of music in the background. Boaz and Ruth have a son now, and he's actually old enough to run into his grandmother's lap. She picks him up and grabs him, And there's a group of women now who are looking on and observing uh, this woman in the town here in Bethlehem, seeing and celebrating the birth of Naomi's grandson. It's such a stark contrast, of course, with what we read about Naomi at the end of chapter one. Do you remember? She comes back from Moab, returns to a crowd of women in Bethlehem, but she returns bitter and empty. She returns without family. She returns without joy, without hope. How different is the picture here? She's satisfied. She is full. The famine has ended now, not just of food, but also of family. She no longer identifies with her bitterness, as she does at the end of chapter 1. She identifies with sweetness, which is what her name Naomi means. Redemption has been accomplished for her family line. And the crowd of women now are looking on, they're seeing it, they're celebrating with her. And this grandson of hers is given a significant name, like many other characters in here. His name is Obed, which means servant. Naomi would care for him as his nanny in his youth, but then he would serve her in in her old age as he grew up. That's the happily ever after ending that we were looking for, really, this whole time. 
Naomi has moved now from emptiness and sorrow to fullness and joy. Ruth has acted as a worthy woman who embodied the Lord's hesed kindness towards Naomi and her family. We get a great example of her kindness and diligence and compassion and concern and godliness, her courage. And she was rewarded with a husband and a son. And then, of course, there was Boaz, who embodied the Lord's kindness just like Ruth did. He was strong. He was kind. He stood up to the plate, willingly embracing the cost of redeeming those who were powerless and helpless in and of themselves. He loved and embraced God's law. He really is like a walking illustration of Psalm 119. It's kind of what Boaz is playing out in real time. He used his influence, he used his resources as a way to bless others, and in doing so was blessed by the Lord with a wife and with a son. And now the story ends. The town is gathering around to celebrate this provision of the Lord's kindness towards this ordinary Israelite family during the very dark times of the days of the judges. And so on one level, our story ends there. Close the book, that's kind of the end of it. But the last word of verse 17, if we're paying attention, if we're following along, it sort of drops on us like a bomb. The father of David. You mean that David? (laughs) Yes, yes, that David. Notice the genealogy that that serves us as a coda to the end of this book. In verses 18 through 22, the coda Redemption anticipated. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amidadab. Amidadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So as we said, on one level, this is a touching story of loving kindness, it's redemption, it's restoration for a particular family. But on another level, this is about something much bigger than simply this one family. Remember, this is during the dark times of the judges, the days of the judges where there was no king and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. No one was leading God's people, no one was enforcing devotion to God's law. But in his providential governance of history, the Lord was using this ordinary family from Israel to preserve the line of Judah in order to bring about a king for the whole nation of Israel. David would be the greatest king that Israel would ever know. And he would come from this family line, this whole narrative that we've just read about, in a very real sense is about Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, but it's actually not. It's also about Israel It's about God providing a king for his people. And so David would come, a man after God's own heart, who would be worthy in certain ways, like Boaz and like Ruth. He would continue his steadfast, loyal love to his people through King David. So now we know the rest of the story. And so we run back through the narrative in our minds. Oh, so when, when Ruth was showing Hesed to Naomi, that was actually the Lord showing Hesed to them, for sure. But it was also the Lord acting in kindness to all of Israel. When Boaz redeems Ruth, it's a small picture of the way that the Lord was going to provide a greater redeemer for his people. 
And when Ruth just so happened to show up on Boaz's parcel of the land, it wasn't simply a meet-cute that they could tell their grandkids about someday in the future. It was a providentially governed appointment that would play one small infinitesimal part in the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. God would provide a man after his own heart to rule and to lead over his people and his name would be David, and he would come from this family. David, of course, we know is an extraordinary king, but he was also an ordinary man. David, even at his greatest, was not the redeemer that God's people ultimately needed. But we know, because we read our call to worship text earlier in the service, that David simply is pointing forward to someone beyond himself to the birth of Jesus Christ who would be born in Bethlehem, who would enter the narrative of human history as the very bread of life himself, who was born in the fullness of times, who would die for the ungodly at just the right time, who would never leave or forsake his people, who would be the embodiment in a very real sense of the Lord's hesed kindness to his people, who would reach into the most powerless and helpful areas of our lives, which is sin and death, and bring restoration and redemption. Who would blot out our sin, but would never blot out our names from the Lamb's book of life. Friends, I hope you understand the story. I mean, truly understand the spiritual significance of this story. The testimonies of Ruth and of Naomi and of Boaz, they resonate with us even here this morning in the pews in a way that they never would have known. They could never have anticipated because they pointed to Christ, a Christ that we know by experience, by propositional truth, we know the hope of God that they were anticipating in very real sense. Boaz, Ruth, Naomi, they were just each one piece in the greater puzzle, one fraction of the mosaic of redemptive history that when we zoom out, we can tell actually when you zoom out, it actually bears the the image of Christ himself. Their story, as great as it is, is simply one small piece of it. So I suggest that the big idea of this final sermon in Ruth is this. God governs history to provide a king to redeem his people from all their sin and sorrow. God governs history to provide a king to redeem his people from all their sin and sorrow. We're going to hear some testimonies in a moment from our baptismal candidates. Uh, And we're going to hear a little bit about the way that the Lord is still at work I find these testimonies to be so encouraging, knowing that the Lord is very much still at work redeeming and restoring. The details that we read about here in this narrative might seem distant from us, but when you actually listen to people's testimonies and you hear the fun little coincidences where they happen to show up uh, when a certain sermon text is being preached or they happen to pass by this church on their way to work, These things that are just like, eh, they chanced to chance upon these things are not accidental. The Lord is not only at work in the past, 
He's very much at work right now in and amongst his church, even here this morning. But the narratives of these folks, they wouldn't know these things in real time. We just go back into their time again for a minute. They would never have known these things. Think about them at the end of chapter one, that sorrow, that despair, that emptiness. They never could have anticipated what the Lord had in store for them. So may I suggest, friends, that all our lives, as they're lived out in history, in real time, are filled with very similar questions. Why am I facing what I'm facing? And we don't have the answer in real time. But friends, friends, if we can trust the goodness, if we can trust the sovereignty of God, we can know that he is working out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So maybe this actually, this big idea of Ruth, maybe this should be the guiding interpretive principle of all of our lives. Naomi, of course, stands as one of those rare examples who is able to see redemption in her own eyes in the near sense. But don't miss this point. Her truest redemption spiritually was not witnessed by herself in her life on earth. It wasn't Boaz. It wasn't even Obed. It wasn't even David. It was Jesus Christ, our Lord, great David's greater son, Jesus, who would be both willing and able to enter into and pay the price to redeem all of his people from their sin and sorrow. So the point of the book of Ruth is, do you know that Redeemer? Praise be to God for our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.